moving from the New Living Translation, uh, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 7. Now about the questions you asked in your letter. Yes, it is good to live a celibate life. But because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should not deprive his wife of sexual intimacy, which is her right as a married woman, nor should the wife deprive her husband. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband also gives authority over his body to his wife. So do not deprive each other of sexual relations. The only exception to this rule would be the agreement of both husband and wife to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so they can give themselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, they should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt them because of their lack of self-control. This is only my suggestion. It is not meant to be an absolute rule. I wish everyone could get along without marrying, just as I do. But we are not all the same. God gives some the gift of marriage, and to others he gives the gift of singleness. Now I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. But if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. It's better to marry than to burn with lust. Now for those who are married, I have a command that comes from not from me, but from the Lord. A wife must not leave her husband, but if she does leave him, let her remain single or else go back to him, and the husband must not leave his wife. Now, I speak to the rest of you, though I, am not, though I do not have a direct command from the Lord. If a Christian man has a wife who is an unbeliever and she is willing to continue living with him, he must not leave her. And if a Christian woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he is willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. For the Christian wife brings holiness to marriage and the Christian husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not have a godly influence, but now they are set apart for him. But if the wife or husband who isn't a Christian insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the Christian husband or wife is not required to stay with them, for God wants his children to live in peace. You wives must remember that your husbands might be converted because of you, and you husbands must remember that your wives might be converted because of you. You must accept every, whatever situation the Lord has put you in and continue on as you were when God first called you. This is my rule for all the churches. For instance, a man who was circumcised before he became a believer should not try to reverse it. And the man who was uncircumcised when he became a believer should not try, uh, sorry, should not be circumcised now. For it makes no difference whether or not a man has been circumcised. The important thing is to keep God's commandments. You should continue on as you were when God called you. Are you a slave? Don't let that worry you. But if you get a chance to be free, take it. And remember, if you were a slave when the Lord called you, 
the Lord has now set you free from the awful power of sin. And if you were free when the Lord called you, you're now a slave to Christ. God purchased you at a high price. Don't be enslaved by the world. So dear brothers and sisters, whatever situation you were in when you became a believer, stay there in your new relationship with God. Now, about the young women who are not yet married, I do not have a command from the Lord for them, but the Lord in his kindness has given me wisdom that can be trusted, and I will share it with you. Because of present crisis, I think it is best to remain just as you are. If you have a wife, do not end the marriage. If you do not have a wife, do not get married. But if you do get married, it is not a sin. And if a young woman gets married, it is not a sin. However, I am trying to spare you the extra problems that come with marriage. I hope you can explain all this, Steve. (laughs) Now, let me say this, dear brothers and sisters. The time that remains is very short. So husbands should not let marriage be their major concern. Happiness or sadness or wealth should not keep anyone from doing God's work. Those in frequent contact with the things of the world should make good use of them without becoming attached to them. For this world and all it contains will pass away. In everything you do, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man can't do so well. He has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be more devoted to the Lord in body and spirit, while the married woman must be concerned about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. I am saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help to serve the Lord best and as few distractions as possible. But if a man thinks he ought to marry his fiancée because he has trouble controlling his passions and time is passing, it is all right. It is not a sin. Let them marry. But if he has decided firmly not to marry and there is no urgency and he can't control his passion, he does well not to marry. So the person who marries does well, and the person who doesn't marry does even better. A wife is married to her husband as long as he lives. If her husband dies, she's free to marry whomever she wishes. But this must be a marriage acceptable to the Lord. But in my opinion, it will be better for her if she doesn't marry again. And I think I'm giving you counsel from God's spirit when I say this. The word of the Lord. Thank you so much, uh, Althea, for that. And it's great to hear Dave as well giving us uh, an update on the, uh, the work that they've been doing out in Spain. My word, that was some reading, wasn't it? That was a long, long chapter. And uh, it's undoubtedly as clear as mud to most of us this morning. So see what we can do together as we understand this and see what uh, application that it has for us. And Lord, we just pray that you'll give us understanding hearts this morning. Amen. Well, that day I dreaded is upon me. 
chapter 5 was difficult. Chapter 6 was even more difficult. And chapter 7 is simply off the scale. And if we were not speaking in a series at the moment, uh, there is no way that I would come to this chapter out of choice (laughs) and attempt to make something of it to a Sunday morning service. Well, chapter 7, verse 1, is really the turning point of this letter. Up to this point, Paul has been dealing with things that he wanted to bring to the Corinthian church. He'd heard on the grapevine certain things about this church, and he wanted to tell them that what they were doing was wrong, such as they were following human leaders. Some were saying, we follow Paul. Others were saying, Apollos is our man. Others, we follow Peter. And he's saying that's wrong. And he spent the best part of four chapters telling them how wrong that was. And he spoke into that church, dealing with their squabbles and their divisions, and saying that they were letting their guard down, that they were dishonoring the Lord, and that they were lowering their testimony. Uh, Following that, he then went on to speak to them about the the man who was having a sexual affair with his stepmother. And he said that wasn't good either. And then he further went on, and as we looked last week, he went on to talk to them about um, taking each other to court and how they were not to do that and how it was dishonoring. But from chapter 7, verse 1, and for the rest of the letter, Paul is addressing the questions that the church members had asked him. I say, up to this point, it's what he wanted to tell them. But now he's addressing their questions. And let's have a look at some of these verses. In chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Now regarding the questions you asked in your letter. So it's a turning point here. Uh, In chapter 8, verse 1. Now regarding the question about food that has been offered to idols. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now, dear brothers and sisters, regarding your question about the special ability the Spirit gives us. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem. Chapter 16, verse 12. Now about our brother Apollos. Okay, so it's all now about. So he's referring to all the questions that they had asked him. And the first batch of questions that we are looking at today and that Althea read to us a moment ago about are questions about relationships. There have been occasions, not many thankfully, in my ministry when I got invited to youth groups to speak on the very thorny issue of boy-girl relationships. And uh, that was nearly always followed by a Q&A. And that's where the fun starts. You know, when you're giving a talk, you can be largely in control of the content of your talk. But then when you open it out afterwards, certainly to teenagers, and they can ask any question they like on these sexual matters, you know, it's a very precarious position. It really is. And as I look back, my word, I blush with some of the questions I was asked. And I blush even more with some of the answers I gave as well. Well, this was like a Q&A with Paul, that they had sent Paul uh, a letter, and it wasn't the church youth that sent him the letter, it was the church. 
And basically the questions that were given to Paul were not that different to your typical church youth group, or some of the ones certainly that I've spoken at over the years. Some of you might be wondering this morning, what on earth are we spending a Sunday morning teaching time looking at this subject? You know, why are we doing this? This surely isn't very relevant, is it? And I would argue that it is actually very relevant because there is something in this chapter for everyone in this room today. It's, uh, uh, Paul speaks to those who are married, to those who wish they were married, to those who wish they weren't married, to those who are single, to those who were once married and sadly are no, no longer married because of either divorce or they are widowed. Everyone is included. And I've certainly got two very opposite thoughts uh, about this this morning. Uh, On the one hand, out of choice, I would rather speak on just about anything. You know, give me the book of Leviticus any day. All right? (laughs) On the other hand, I'm actually glad that the Bible is so practical and down to earth that it has chapters like this that are a bit of a headache for preachers. I'm actually glad about that, that they can act as a guide for us in areas which are affected, uh, affect us all in one way or another. And Paul, as you can see from this chapter, he isn't prudish, he isn't narrow-minded, but he's pragmatic, he's down-to-earth, he's upfront about all this stuff. Okay, one last introductory comment, and then we'll, we'll get into the text. We need to remind ourselves that this was written 2,000 years ago to a very specific historical context. And therefore we need to uh, understand or attempt to understand what was happening in the culture and what was happening in the city of Corinth before we dive in and just grab those words and apply them to ourselves in 21st century UK. Yeah? You see, this letter is not written to us, but it is written for us. And there's a big difference between those statements. It is written, not to us, but it is written to a bunch of first century Christians in the city of Corinth who had written to Paul and asked him his um, views on a whole number of subjects. It's not written to us, but it's written for us in that those words being part of scripture, are words that will encourage us and words that we can check our own lives against and show us what is wrong so that we can put it right again. Right, are you ready to start? (laughs) Am I? I'll let you know in half hour. Okay. Please bring your Bibles as well. Do encourage you, bring your Bibles, bring a notebook as well to church on a Sunday morning. The first question that they ask Paul is, is it good to abstain from sexual relations? Now, I read that and I thought that's a bit of an odd question, isn't it? Is it okay to abstain from sexual relations? Why should they ask that? You know, going back to those uh, talks I gave in church youth groups, their questions were the exact opposite of that. It was not, you know, can we abstain? How much can we do? How far can we go? Um, (laughs) 
Christians aren't supposed to have sexual in- intercourse before marriage, is it okay to do blankety-blank? Well, you can fill in the blankety-blanks yourself. I'm not going there this morning. But that is the kind of question that, you know, we would very often get within that context. So what's going on here? Corinth is a highly permissive society. Basically, and there's no easy way to say this, the city was sex mad. And as I said last week, each night the prostitutes from the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, would come into the city and ply their trade. A thousand of them, men and women. Everybody was at it with everybody. And all of this was done in the name of religion. So, when people became Christians, some of them went to the opposite extreme. They actually abstained from sexual intercourse. And it would appear that the Corinthian Christians asked this question because there were some Christians within their church who believed that to abstain was far more uh, spiritually, morally higher than those who had sex. Um, I suppose it's a little bit like today that some people believe that being married is superior to those who are not married. And I'm going to come back to that later on. That's a really, really important question that we need to deal with today. So Paul says to them, yes, it's okay to abstain. And he then follows that up by saying, yes, it's also good to be married. And he continues by saying that actually there's great benefit in being married because you fulfill each other's sexual needs. Okay, let's look at these verses, verses 3 to 5 here. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations. Now, you know, I might have said this before, sex wasn't Satan's invention. Sexual intimacy is God's thought and God's design and God's desire within the bounds of marriage. Sex is God's gift within the context of marriage. And as you can see in the verses that I've just put up on screen there, Paul isn't saying that sex is just for procreation, for making babies. And I need to say that because I've come across some Christians over the years who believe that it was. But Paul makes it clear that the sexual act is also for intimacy and for mutual pleasure between husband and wife. And he's really, really straightforward about this. You see, if the sexual act was just for procreation, for making babies, why did God make it so pleasurable? You know, our God of infinite wisdom and astonishing creativity You know, if it was all about making babies, he could have arranged some other way, couldn't he? You know, husband and wife cut toenails, put toenails into raspberry jelly, put in fridge overnight, open the door in the morning, and out comes your new offspring. Hey, it's it's, it's, it's pretty good. There's a lot going for this, you know. There's no labor pains. There's no morning sickness. It could have been done that way. God could have done that way. God can do anything. But he didn't. And the reason for that is that God designed a process where two people 
become one, not only physically, but also emotionally and spiritually as well. Okay. Put my pastor's hat on now. And just say for a few minutes that um, many, peop- m- many people struggle in marriage, and sometimes their marriage comes on rocky times because they get this area wrong. And Paul says that it's both the wifely duty and the husbandly duty to fulfill their partner's sexual needs. Um, and not to put your wife or your husband in, in a place of temptation. And again, I'm going to be really blunt about this. And, you know, if I'm offending you, uh, I'm not sorry. Um, I'm going to, you know, too many fake headaches, whichever way around it might be, can create a, a deep frustration with your partner, which turns to a hurt, which turns to a, an anger which is simmering beneath the surface, which can turn into bitterness, which can possibly turn eventually into adultery. And Paul says, not to withhold sex from your husband or wife, unless this is something that you can both agree on and only for a time. Paul's words, the wife gives authority over her body to her husband and vice versa. And before any of you guys interpret that to mean twice a day, Monday to Saturday and three times on a Sunday. It doesn't, okay? It doesn't mean that at all. The focus here is on mutuality. And I love the way that Eugene Peterson interprets this in the message. The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife, the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. And, you know, I I would often encourage uh, newly married or those about to get married to talk about these things. You know, it's not often you hear this thing on a Sunday morning in church, is it? And if we weren't going through 1 Corinthians, you wouldn't be hearing it this morning either, all right? But we're dealing with the scriptures here. This is, this is good practical stuff. It really is. And, you know, we need to be grown up uh, about this. And I encourage newly marrieds and those who are about to get married to talk very openly about these things and to be open with each other and to work out what's good for them. Um, and obviously, there are, you know, sex is a very important part in married life. But it's not just all about sex. There are many other wonderful things in marriage as well, such as friendship and companionship and conversation and care and sacrificial love and serving one another and laughter and tears and doing the dishes together. And I thought I'd throw that in. And the spiritual side of marriage, because those who pray together stay together. So... Paul's advice here to the Christians is, it's okay to be single, and it's okay to be married. And then he follows up by saying that he wishes that everyone was single, just as he was. But not everyone is called to that. As I say, I'll come back to that in a little while. That is so, so important. The next question. 
There's not just one question here about relationships. There are lots of questions about relationships in this chapter. The next question is about divorced people. Verses 10 and 11. But for those who are married, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. A wife must not, inter- not leave her husband, but if she does leave him, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him. And the husband must not leave his wife. Now the first thing that I see about this particular verse and a couple of other verses there, let me put them up on screen for you. In verse uh, 10, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. Verse 12, I do not have a direct command from the Lord. And verse 25, I do not have a command from the Lord for them. So what's going on here? When Paul says that he does not have a command from the Lord, all he was saying there is that he doesn't have any direct statements that he knows of that Jesus made that he spoke on this subject at some time. He doesn't know of anything that Jesus ever said directly into that subject. That's what he's saying. And when he is saying that um, he has a, a command from the Lord, what he was simply saying there was that he was actually aware of something that Jesus had said in the past. You see, in the first few centuries of the church, they didn't have Bibles as we have them today. They didn't even have a New Testament. But there were statements from Jesus that were circulating in the Christian communities. So when Paul says that a wife must not leave her husband, he is actually quoting what he knows Jesus to have said previously either been written down by someone or maybe it's remembered through the telling and retelling of that in the Christian community. I have a command that comes not from me but from the Lord. A wife must not leave her husband but if she does leave him let her remain single or or else be reconciled to him and the husband must not leave his wife. Okay, this is a real thorny issue. Real thorny issue, particularly within church. That is God's ideal. Divorce, I think, was one of the hottest issues of Jesus' day. And it was a subject which was often debated amongst the rabbis and the religious scholars. And they attempted to drag Jesus into this discussion... What's going on here? And one example of that is found in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Okay, what's this all about? The Jews of Jesus' day, they fell into two particular schools. There were two famous rabbis. There was Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel. Rabbi Shammai was um, someone who was a conservative. And uh, Rabbi Hillel, well, he had a much more of a liberal approach. And they they both tried to interpret what the Old Testament had said about divorce. And it's this verse here. Deuteronomy 24 verse 1. 
If a man marries a woman and who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and writes her a certificate of divorce, and that, that, that carries on. You see, the big issue here, and as I put it in bold there, were those words, becomes displeasing to him. Now, as I say, these two rabbis, these famous rabbis, had a different view on this. Rabbi Shammai uh, was a conservative, and he took a rather rigorous approach. And he said that a man could divorce his wife only on the basis of some serious matrimonial uh, offence, such as adultery. Rabbi Hillel, he was the liberal. And he said that a man could divorce his wife for anything, basically, for any reason at all. He could divorce her if she put too much salt in the dinner. Well, that would have been displeasing to him. That was the way that he interpreted it. Um, he could divorce her if she was seen with her head uncovered in society or talking to men in the street. Um, or if she became rather plain looking when compared to a younger, prettier model. Well, she was displeasing to him now, so he could divorce, she, he could divorce her. Or if she got a boil on her nose. Or if she turned grey, if she put on a few pounds, or if she started wearing Laura Ashley dresses. I don't know. Anything. All of the above. Okay? And you see, every rabbi who had been trained in this liberal school of Rabbi Hillel thought these liberal views. So when Jesus was asked what he believed, basically uh, he was being asked, do you agree with Rabbi Shammai or do you agree with Rabbi Hillel? And Rabbi Jesus was a conservative. <clears throat> rabbi Jesus taught the sanctity of marriage. Rabbi Jesus taught that God's ideal for marriage is one man, one woman for life. For that reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the discussion continues today. Churches fall out with each other because they don't see eye to eye on this. Pastors see this differently, all using the same Bible. It's a hugely complicated subject. My view, for what it's worth, is that God's ideal is one man, one woman for life. But we don't live in an ideal world. We live in a fallen world, a broken world. And as Christians, we are called to minister and serve those who are broken by life's hurts. And sometimes they are broken by their own foolishness or sinfulness. Do you remember the occasion when Jesus scolded the religious teachers because they were so careful about tithing to even the, uh, the tiniest income from their herb gardens. And at the same time, as they did that, they ignored the far weightier matters of the law, such as justice and mercy and faith. And on subjects like divorce and remarriage, there's a variety of views. But what I would say is that sometimes Christians are so focused on the details of all of this that they've missed something far bigger, far more important. And that is mercy. And I will always do my best to act with mercy and compassion in those circumstances. And now Paul in verse 12, he goes on to say, Now I will speak to the rest of you, though I do not have a direct command from the Lord. 
In some ways, I think that we are in a similar place today because there are many questions in our day and age in the 21st century that Jesus simply didn't deal with. You can look through all the red print of your Bible and there is not a word on many of those issues that Jesus has to deal with. And Paul was struggling with this as well. And he says, I I, I do not have a direct command from the Lord, but... And then he gives his view, a very pragmatic, practical view. And very often we're in that same position today. And we can say that we, we don't have a direct command from the Lord. But since we know Jesus, since we know his teaching, his ways, his justice, his mercy, his compassion, this would seem to be the reasonable way forward. There are many questions I'm asked as a pastor in pastoral counseling situations which you know, I, I simply can't go back because Jesus has never spoken about those things. So how do I help people move forward? It's by the bigger picture. Not forgetting mercy. Not forgetting compassion and justice and faith. Now I will speak to the rest of you, though I do not have a direct command from the Lord. If a fellow believer has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to continue living with him, he must not leave her. And if a believing woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. Now again, Paul is very pragmatic here. They were asking, the Corinthians were asking, well, when a person becomes a Christian, they're a new creation in Christ, aren't they? Yes. Well, Can they leave their husband or wife and marry someone else who might be more sympathetic to their Christian faith? Can they do that? That was the question. And Paul's advice is that they should remain married to the same person as long as their partner still wants them as a wife or husband. I don't know about you, but sometimes I actually feel a little bit sorry for the person, the, the wife or the husband who hasn't become a, a Christian. You know, the, their, their husband or wife has. And I, I feel a little bit sorry on times for the one who hasn't. Because they are no longer married to that same person. You know, the person that they were married to has drastically changed. They're a different person. And sometimes the person who is not a Christian will accuse them of being brainwashed or becoming some kind of religious freak. But they are not the person that they said, I will to in the marriage ceremony. I know of a guy, some years ago I knew this guy, he was uh, a nightclub disc jockey. And uh, he he became a Christian and uh, his life changed. And his wife just didn't want to know him. And she left him, she took the kids. And Paul says here that it is better to allow the unbelieving partner to go than to live in constant situation, arguments and fights, and to to live at peace. And the decision to leave that marriage should come from the unbelieving partner. The Christian should not choose to separate, at least for that reason. At least, there are occasions, by the way, when... I have known Christians have made a choice to move away from their marriage and there have been very good, sensible pastoral reasons for that. One of them would be domestic violence. 
which is uh, unabating. It's, it's continuing. In such circumstances, you just don't carry on in that. But in this situation, where one person becomes a Christian and the other is not, just for that reason, you don't choose to move away from the marriage. And Paul gives some very good reasons here. <coughs> of course, it's tough stuff, isn't it? Phew. Hey, don't forget my coffee at the end, Dave, right? Thanks. Verse 14. For the unbelieving wife brings holiness to her marriage, and the believing husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy. But now they are holy. But if the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the believing husband or wife is no longer bound to the other. For God has called you to live in peace. Don't your wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you? And don't your husbands realize that your wives might be saved because of you? You see, Paul says here that the, the believing spouse can have a very positive effect upon their partner. They might even actually bring their unbelieving partner to faith. They might come to know Jesus because of the influence, the godly influence that you might have in the home. And I would say to you as well this morning, you know, because I know that there are some within our gathering here today, don't underestimate the power of godly influence in your family members. Don't be too discouraged. Hang in there. Be consistent in your faith. Keep on loving them. Keep on praying for them. And don't lose heart. And then on the back of this advice, verse 17. Each of you continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you. And remain as you were when God first called you. So what's this all about? Some people who became Christians felt that they had to change everything in their lives. Everything. Some of them might have said, well, I've got nothing in common with my wife anymore. Surely God would want me to be happy with someone who's like-minded. Others might be saying, oh, if I could only leave my present job and go to Bible college and train to become a pastor. <laughs> and so forth, okay? How many times have we said in our lives, if only, if only this could change, if only that could change, then I would be better placed to serve God. And Paul is saying to them, not to assume that they are in the wrong place or married to the wrong person. As you can do God's work and demonstrate your faith anywhere. Don't become so focused, he says, on doing something for God somewhere else and miss the opportunity that you have exactly where you are. I tell you what, that's an important lesson. It really is. That might be an important lesson for some of us here today. You know, because we've grumbled about where we are right now and the situation that we find ourselves. And we've said, if only I could be wherever or do this. Or if, if only that situation could change. Just look where you are. Just look where you are. Don't miss the opportunities that you have. Okay, not too much longer. Verse 25. Now regarding your question about young women who are not yet married, 
I do not have a command from the Lord for them. But the Lord in his mercy has given me wisdom that can be trusted. And I will share it with you. Now, you see, at face value here, it would appear that the Apostle Paul was far more in favor of people being unmarried than being married. Look at these verses together. Verse 8. So I say to those who are unmarried and to widows, it is better to stay unmarried just as I am. And then in verse 26. Because of the present crisis, I think it is best to remain as you are. Not forgetting here he's speaking to those who are um, single at this point. Verse 39 and 40. A wife is bound to a husband as long as he lives. If a husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but only if he loves the Lord. But in my opinion, it would be better for her to stay single. Okay. What's going on here? Why was Paul so in favor of people remaining single? Well, we've got some clues here, okay? And, you know, sometimes you need to just study and sit and reflect upon the scriptures uh, to understand what's going on. Some clues. Verse 26. Paul speaks of the present crisis. Because of the present crisis, I think it is best to remain as you are. And then in verse 28... He speaks about wanting to spare them problems at this time. So what's this all about? Paul, I believe, had a prophetic gift. And Paul was aware of the terrible persecution that would soon come upon the church in the Middle East, in the Roman Empire. He was aware of all of that prophetically. And history tells us that that happened. That the church was persecuted and there were martyrdoms, and there was torture. And just think of it now. If you're a family pers uh, person, wouldn't you rather go through persecution yourself than actually go through persecution with your family at your side? Yeah? Doesn't that make sense? You know, um, on, on, on occasions, um, some Christians, in order to get them to recant their faith, they were made to watch their partners or children being put to death. And that's the last thing they saw before they had their eyes plugged out. Okay? And what Paul is saying here, he's encouraging them to remain single so that they would be spared all of that. Church history tells us of a mother whose baby was taken away from her. And the mother was told that if she denied Christ, she would have her baby back. But she wouldn't deny Christ. So the baby was put in the next cell to her. And she could hear the baby crying out for milk. And she was told as soon as she denied Christ, she would be able to have her baby back. And the baby cried and cried until there was no more sound. You see, in that context, Paul's words about being single make a lot of sense. But that isn't the only argument he makes for being single, because that applied to then especially. But Paul had a very high view of being single. Now, when I was growing up, a long time ago, there was an expectation upon people of my age of getting married. And anyone who didn't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend by the age of 17 
was looked upon with great suspicion. My parents and my grandparents' generation used to say such things as, you, ne- you need to get a move on, you know. All the good ones will be gone. You better hurry up, you'll be left on the shelf. And we remember that sort of conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so liking a person without a boyfriend or a girlfriend, much in the way that you'd view a last packet of cornflakes on the shelf at Tesco's. You know the one with the broken package, the one that's been squashed in transit, the one that no one wants. And the implication is, what is wrong with you? Now, Paul certainly didn't agree with that. He didn't believe that. And I don't believe it either. Paul taught that there was a great benefit in being single. That it wasn't God's second best. It wasn't God's plan B. For some people, at least, says Paul, it's the very best option for them. And it is God's call upon their lives. And actually, then, he makes out a very, very good case for this. And Paul says that a person who is married has interests which are divided. They can't devote as much time to the Lord's work as the person who is single. You see, if a single person is out every night of the week doing the Lord's work, he or she is only accountable to themselves. But for a married person, that would be very, very difficult. Unwise. The marriage would probably fall apart. And I remember when I was in my, um, my first church, big city center church, there were many times that I was expected to be out every single night of the week to one event or one meeting. And it wasn't easy. And it wasn't helpful to the family. In fact, there was a swear word that we tried not to use in front of our kids. And there's no, you know, the kids are out now, so I can use that swear word, all right? It's the word meetings. And Paul says that if you are happy being single, stay single. Don't need to go on every online dating site in an attempt to find the Mr. or Miss Right, whether it's Match.com or eHarmony or sites for the elderly or sites for gay people or sites for Christians. And I'm not knocking that necessarily. I'm not. Because for some people it's worked and it's okay. But I suppose if Paul was here this morning... He would be saying to us, don't be driven by this. It's okay. But it isn't necessary. It's great being married. And it's great being single as well. Though I'm sure that Paul would say to those Christians wishing to find a lifelong partner that they need to love the Lord. I'm done. I'm done in, actually. (laughs) How do I summarize what we've been studying this morning? Not a clue. I do, actually. Bloom where you're planted. Honor God with your lives. As singles, as married, as people divorced as people widowed. Don't become so focused on doing something for God somewhere else. 
that you miss the great opportunities you have exactly where you are. Would you stand, please? Let's pray together. Guys, would you like to come back?